0: Charles Cunningham Boycott was a British Army captain who found himself in Ireland after retirement from the military and took up work as a land agent for a lord there meaning he ran things on these big swaths of farmland, and his responsibilities included the supervision of the farmers who worked that land. A political organization called the Irish Land League, that was campaigning for fairer work conditions and employment contracts for farmers and farmhands, encouraged the workers under Captain Boycott to withdraw their labor from the land that he was managing until he gave in to their demands. This refusal to work was accompanied by the efforts of local business owners who refused to serve him or sell him anything. Some of these business owners did so willingly to help the farm workers, while others were threatened by the group. Either way, the result was the complete isolation of Charles Cunningham boycott, who couldn't interact with anyone or buy anything or get anything done at work. Now, the isolation of a man who was seen by the larger British citizenry to be an ordinary civil servant, harassed and victimized by Irish extremists, caused the case to become popular news throughout the UK. As a result of this large-scale attention toward the inattention that was being forced upon boycott, a group of 50 workers were brought in from other regions to work the farm that he managed along with a full regiment of cavalry and over 1,000 armed policemen to protect those 50 workers against the perceived threat from the locals who were isolating the captain. The crop from that farmland was harvested that year, despite the best efforts of the Irish protesters, but the crop, which was worth only about £500, ended up costing the British government around £10,000 to harvest. Because of all the soldiers and police and the outside workers that they had to bring in and pay. The same year that all this went down, 1880, the term boycott began to show up in print to refer to ostracism when applied to a landlord or a land agent like Captain Boycott. The term was intended to be used as an alternative to the phrase social excommunication, which was then commonly used to refer to the Same punishment that boycott suffered, but when applied to a land grabber or any other type of real estate related criminal. The word boycott first appeared in a dictionary eight years later, in 1888. Since then, it's been adopted by other languages, including French and German and Dutch and Russian and Polish, as they did not already have equivalent words, and they found this term to be useful. Although not a public figure, Captain Boycott, who often went by just his first and middle name, Charles Cunningham, when he traveled to avoid public attention, had obituaries published after his death in several prominent London newspapers. Being ignored, it would seem, led to the opposite during the later years of his life and after his death. Today I want to talk about boycotts and more specifically, a type of boycott that is having a lot of impact on the shape of our media and how we consume media today. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's note Things is a listener-supported show, which means that it is brought to you by you. There are numerous different ways that you can help support the show, a full list of which can be found at letsnotethings.com if you click on the Contribute page. But a few standout ways to do so would be leaving a review on iTunes or sharing the show with a friend or your social media network of choice. You can also contribute monetarily through PayPal and Venmo. And then I recently started a Patreon account for the show as well. So if you go to patreon.com slash things, you can contribute monetarily to this show there while also receiving some additional benefits, including an ad-free version of every episode. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. The first of which today is Everlane. Everlane is my favorite clothing company. They produce clothing ethically. They produce clothing that is aesthetically simple and minimal. They have wonderful basics, great structurally well-made clothing that also tends to look good with everything. And if you go to letsknowthings.com slash everlane, I will receive a commission on anything that you purchase over there. So it's a great way to perhaps fill in gaps in your wardrobe, buy some clothing that will help you dodge the fast fashion thing, clothing that will last you for a good long time, and that will look good while also helping to support this podcast. That's letsnotethingscom slash Everlane. And the other sponsor today is Linda. Lynda.com is a website where you can learn a whole lot of different things. I have used Lynda to learn to use a bunch of different professional software in design and in audio. I've also used it for other random things like music theory and even voice exercises for singing. Subscribing to Lynda gives you access to their entire collection, and you can watch as many of their courses as you care to each month. And if you go to letsnotethingscom things.com slash Linda, that's L Y N D A, you will receive a free 30 day trial to the entirety of their course catalog. And again, that's also a great way to help support the show. That's letsnotethingscom things.com slash Linda. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today comes from Fast Company, and it's entitled The Guy Who Helped Take Down Bill O'Reilly Is Now Targeting Sean Hannity. The guy, from the headline, is a man named Angelo Carasone of Media Matters, a man who has been leading advertiser boycotts against popular Fox News personalities for a good long while, including Glenn Beck. Several years ago, and Bill O'Reilly more recently in early April 2017. The boycott against Beck took around 20 months to grow and mature and eventually crescendo in his ouster from the network. The boycott against O'Reilly came to a far quicker close. By April 21st, 2017, that's the same month that the boycott began. Salon published an article with this title, How the Left Brought Down Bill O'Reilly, the activist campaign that toppled Fox News' biggest star. There are several differences between these two boycotts that led to these commentators' firings. The first difference is in the personalities in question. Glenn Beck was never as big as Bill O'Reilly. And it could be argued that we have a the bigger they are, the harder they fall situation on our hands. O'Reilly had become a center of gravity for the Fox News Network, and as such, his loss of the majority of his sponsors within just a few weeks was a crushing blow to the network. Not to mention a bigger public black eye than a mere scuffle involving a famous and moderately powerful host who is not, however, the linchpin holding the entire network together. Beck was big and no doubt important to the network, but he wasn't O'Reilly big and not O'Reilly vital to their balance books. The boycotts were also about different issues. It could be argued that they were both about the same broad topics, namely repeated public aggressive misogyny and racism and the repeated telling of brazen lives on air, and other things that, let's be honest, many big personalities in the modern conservative talk radio and cable TV industry trade in. Some liberal talk radio and cable TV hosts and their equivalent in other mediums, including online, have their own problems that could be equivalent but different But this specific collection of negatives rests very heavily over the conservative talk radio and cable TV media world. But the official rationale for both of these removals differed, with Beck being called to account for some racist tirades that he went on in 2009, and O'Reilly being attacked for his long history and his present predisposition toward sexual harassment and related misconduct. The biggest difference here, though, is probably in how the boycotters organized and spread the news of what they were doing, why they were doing it, and what their aims were. Or maybe I should say the scale at which this news was spread. On April 4th, 2017, Media Matters, which is a liberal watchdog group, published a list of companies that advertised on Bill O'Reilly's show, The O'Reilly Factor. Other liberal groups then shared this list, And some groups, like the popular Twitter account Sleeping Giants, started turning the list into action items, encouraging their followers to contact these companies one by one, privately but also in public, on social media, to make their concerns known, to make it clear that their brand is being associated with these things that Bill O'Reilly has become associated with. Two weeks later, Over 50 advertisers had pulled their ad spots and their ad dollars from the show, and O'Reilly, shortly thereafter, was out of a job. Part of the reason this worked, it is suspected, is that Roger Ailes, the former chairman and CEO of Fox News, and O'Reilly's former boss, who died this month, by the way, in mid-May 2017, was booted from his job back in July of 2016, about a year ago. He officially resigned, but it was under a common assumption that his presence there and his accompaniment of numerous sexual harassment scandals was becoming untenable for a network that has a whole lot of interests beyond that little corner of the TV world that Ailes had carved out for himself in Fox News and which he had purportedly turned into a kind of good old boys club. So Ailes resigned, quote-unquote, for the same reasons that Beck and O'Reilly left the network, apparently on good terms and using language that implies that they weren't let go but left for other reasons. But it's suspected that O'Reilly was only knocked out in this case because Ailes was already gone and Ailes had protected him in the past, and it's suspected that Beck was an easier target because he hadn't quite reached the point of being indispensable enough to weather all the accusations against him when he was boycotted. But the people doing the targeting here have been very clever about it, and that's what's so interesting to me about this collection of stories. They've been using a specific type of boycott and modern communication tools to topple incredibly powerful media personalities and business people. And today especially, that is no small feat. In a time in which these business people and these media Personalities have never been more influential. The fact that they can be toppled at all is remarkable. And today, as I record this, that same tactic that was used against O'Reilly and Beck is being applied to Sean Hannity. And he knows it. And I am very aware that this news item will immediately date this episode in some ways, because any day now, if current trends continue, he could be fired or he could, quote-unquote, resign because of these new boycott efforts. There's, of course, the chance that he will weather the storm and be either worth enough for the network and or advertisers for them to not care about the allegations against him, or it could be that the boycotters will be less effective than they have been in the recent past. As I record this, Hannity is on a holiday weekend vacation, similar to the one that O'Reilly took. During which he was let go. He just never returned from that vacation. More will be known about all this by the time this episode is published, but I'm guessing the fundamentals of the public case being leveled against him and the general tactics being used will remain the same. He'll either be gone or will be hemorrhaging advertisers. And either way, it will all be a big headache for Hannity himself, but also those running Fox News. The rationale behind this particular boycott of Hannity is different from those that have come before, even the ones that have affected other personalities on the network. There have been reports of sexual harassment against Hannity, just as there were against Ailes and O'Reilly, but none of these have seemed to stick, and frankly, looking at them myself, most of these reports seem more like hit jobs and are not really from legitimate news sources. They're all very fringy leftist websites that don't have much backing for their claims. So while there's always a chance that there are women out there who simply haven't come forward or who haven't wanted press for their allegations, it's best not to assume that kind of thing. The chances are higher in this case because of the network and because of its history for that type of treatment of women in particular, but that doesn't seem to be relevant to this particular boycott, at least at the moment. What Hannity has been catching flack for, however, is his repeated pushing of a widely debunked theory about a former Democratic National Committee employee named Seth Rich. Rich was shot and killed in July of 2016, and the killer has not been identified. The police have said that it was most likely a robbery gone wrong, and crime in that area was very high at the time. There's a great Vox explainer on this conspiracy theory that I will link to in the show notes that, that goes very deep on all the details of this and all the evidence for it, and it makes clear how ludicrous the version of events that Handy has been promoting as news are. But there were 24 robberies at gunpoint within a half mile of the street corner in D.C., where Seth Rich was shot and killed in 2016 alone. It was a high-crime area in a part of town that was rapidly gentrifying. Rich was walking alone on his way back from a bar at around four in the morning. The conspiracy theory alleges that he was meeting with someone from WikiLeaks to share information about the DNC that later was exposed and embarrassed the Clinton administration. Information that was shared by WikiLeaks, and which is thought by most people to have been stolen from the DNC's servers by Russian hackers and which is purported to have maybe influenced the election in some small way. The conspiracy theory, though, goes on to claim that the Clintons, who were angry at Rich for this leak that he supposedly committed, and they had him assassinated. But phone data and testimony from his girlfriend show that he was on the phone with her for much of that time, and that he was shot soon after hanging up, during what seemed to be a meandering walk home. From a bar. Now, don't get me wrong here. It is good to be suspicious about things. It's good not to trust everything that you are told. Conspiracies do happen. And sometimes the craziest possible account of events turns out to be the real, actual, truthful account of events, while the reasonable, seeming explanation that is given from the people in charge is just a convenient and well planted story to keep the public from knowing the truth. This has happened over and over again in the past, and it will continue to happen in the future. That said, there doesn't seem to be any basis in fact for this particular conspiracy theory. It's an idea that was posited by far right trolls on social media, and then amplified by far right denizens of a Trumpian Reddit forum, and then massively amplified by attention from personalities like Sean Hannity and Newt Gingrich and Julian Assange the latter of whom cryptically didn't say anything about this theory but seemed to say something that seemed to support this theory, and which didn't add any actual data to things, but it was also somewhat reflective of his leanings politically these days. And more recently, this conspiracy theory was amplified even more by Kim.com, an online personality who, among other things, ran a website called Mega Upload, which was a cloud platform that largely catered to media pirates, which makes sense as he was a teenage hacker who was arrested for all kinds of fraud and breaking all kinds of other rules of the digital world. And Kim.com is more than a little pissed at the Clintons and the Obamas of the world as well, because they took away all his stuff, in a way, indirectly, including his mansion and online piracy empire both of which were raided, his assets frozen, hundreds of millions of dollars frozen in overseas accounts, purportedly at the request of then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Kim.com's motivation here seems to be a little bit revenge against those who did him wrong, and a little bit self-promotion for, and I'm not making this up, an electric dance music album that he put out recently. And I should note that he is well known for making big conspiratorial claims and claiming to have information about and even direct involvement with political scandals that later turn out to be completely made-up hokum. Yet he still continues to make such claims and still continues to be believed by some people for whom it is convenient to believe such things because he knows that the attention that will be drawn his way when he makes such claims will suit his other needs. Now, Assange's efforts seemed to be likewise linked to Revenge as well. As far as I know, he does not have an EDM album to promote, but again, Hillary Clinton is directly tied to his being stuck in the Ecuadorian embassy of London and having been stuck there since 2012. So he's not exactly a fan of Hillary Clinton. Now this is slightly off topic, but I should mention that although both Assange and Dotcom are kind of assholes, and definitely have their own motivations behind these actions that relate to this particular conspiracy theory, and they definitely have kind of shadowy motivations behind other often criminal actions that they have taken in the past, there is some truth to their claim of having been mistreated by the U.S. government and by Clinton and her people in particular. Whistleblowing and the enabling of whistleblowing is something that the Democratic Party in the U.S. has been insanely weak on, in my opinion. And just as with Edward Snowden, I think the witch hunt against Assange, unappealing as I might find him as a person, is wrong. And likewise, the tactics used against Kim.com, which involved political pressure from the U.S. on the New Zealand government to capture him and take his stuff in Auckland, and to figure out a way to extradite him to the U.S. for punishment, these are all of very dubious legitimacy. Legally, it's very unfirm legal ground that is being used to try to capture and punish these people. There are rumors that a lot of this pressure on Kim.com did not originate with politicians, but with media industry lobbyists who were pissed off that he was helping pirates pirate all their movies and TV shows, and that those lobbyists then used their influence with Clinton and her people to bring down the hammer on someone who may have been doing a whole lot of illegal things, but who is also outside of U.S. jurisdiction. This is a complete tangent, I know, but it's worth mentioning both to state my bias here as clearly as possible, but also to make a point that the characters involved in this case have colorful and meandering pasts that very likely influence what they are doing and saying today. But all that said, let's get back to the conspiracy theory that Hannity would not shut up about. In recent weeks, Fox News' viewing numbers have cratered, and the network lost their steady number one position in cable news to MSNBC and CNN, possibly because they almost completely ceased covering Trump and his policies, even when these stories were frankly excellent television. When FBI Director James Comey was fired by Trump in a bizarre and colorful way, the scandal that emerged dominated the airwaves, and audiences could not seem to get enough of it. But you wouldn't know anything of note was happening if you only watched Fox News. They spun the story to ask if maybe this turn of events would lead to an investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails, if you can believe it. An old, reliable story that carried them through the presidential election cycle. But this type of story and this type of obvious misdirection is bringing in far lower numbers today. And though it's not clear that everyone in their audience is looking to get the full story on things and not just the GOP voice box version of events, it is clear that some people, at least some of the time, are vacating the safe hallways of Fox News and going out and exploring the wider world to see what other people are saying. Fox News initially latched onto the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, dedicating an inordinate amount of time to it to fill airtime to avoid talking about Trump. They eventually caved and admitted that their reporting on this theory had no bones to it. There was nothing to back it up. And they issued a correction and a retraction To their previous stories, stating that it wasn't based on evidence and did not measure up to their standards of reporting, and they were therefore withdrawing their support for it. Hannity, though, has stuck with this story. He told his viewers that, yes, Fox has retracted it, but I have not. He said that he would stop talking about it on air for the moment because Seth Rich's family published a video asking conspiracy theorists to please stop torturing them with these ridiculous stories about their son. But Hannity also made clear that he was still doggedly pursuing the story and held to this conspiracy theory, and that he would keep his viewers in the loop as he learned more. Now, for all I know, Hannity actually does believe this story that he's been pitching, and in his mind, he is the Woodward and Bernstein unraveling a deep dark thread Of conspiracy, and he will be a hero as a result at the end of the day. But it's worth noting that he has been stuck on air on Fox News as the newly minted most important personality on that network, trying to fill his slot with content that is not Donald Trump related. There is a meme that's popped up on social media where people simply post images of what's being shown on the major news networks at any given moment. And every time there's something to do with Trump, something that Trump has done recently on every single network, except for Fox, which is instead talking about either Hillary Clinton for some reason or some kind of debunked conspiracy theory. And it makes sense that he would have gravitated toward this particular story to fill all that airtime that he could not spend on what Donald Trump is doing. This story has all the things that Fox viewers have come to enjoy, have been trained to enjoy, namely. Anything related to the so-called deep state, tales of evil liberals, and frankly, the excuse to beat up on Hillary Clinton for just about anything. But this conspiracy theory turned out to be so easily debunked that the network had to step away. So Hannity was then left stuck looking like an idiot after fixating for so many hours on this one topic, only to have his base of support pull that support and pretend that it never happened. So there's a chance that he actually believes all these things that he's saying, but there's also a good chance that he may just be trying to pick up the shattered pieces of his dignity by telling himself or just telling the audience that he is not a spreader of lies. And in fact, he actually knows more than everyone else. He knows something that the rest of the world does not. He is right and they are wrong. He's misunderstood. He is not some kind of farce. And that is how we arrived at this new boycott. In practice, this boycott has the same flavor as the one that was used against O'Reilly, in that it focuses on removing the lifeblood of a cable TV personality, rather than trying to embarrass the network or somehow isolate the person individually, as Captain Boycott was isolated. Instead, it aims at the advertisers and attempts to influence where they spend their money. The secondary consequence of which is that shows and personalities and networks who lose that money when it's moved are forced to change to try to get it back. And in this case, the change that is being aimed at is to knock Hannity off the Fox News network. There are a few things that I think are worth clarifying here about boycotts, but about this particular type of boycott as well. First is that A boycott should not be confused with a sanction, which I talked about on a past episode. A sanction is instigated by a government, while a boycott is set up by a group of people who decide, without any legal tools in their tool belt, to stop buying from a brand, or who threaten to isolate or strongly associate that brand with another negative brand. A sanction is legally binding, and those who do not respect the sanction are punished. A boycott is something people can participate in. But if they fail to live up to the tenets of that boycott, there are no legal consequences. A boycott also shouldn't be confused with ethical consumerism, which is an individual ideology that essentially says a person should consume thoughtfully and intentionally in everything that they buy, and in doing so, That person hopes to, over time, shape consumption habits and the commercial world, what is available on shelves as a whole. So if you want to see more organic produce in the world, you buy only organic produce and do not spend any money on non-organic produce. If you want to see more cosmetics made by companies that don't test their products on animals, you buy from brands who live up to those standards and do not buy from those who do not. This is a personal choice made over time and a choice that is demonstrated in our purchases. Boycotts are more typically made forcefully en masse over a shorter period of time and with a clear achievable goal presented to those who are being boycotted if they want the boycott to go away. So ethical consumption habits can certainly lead to or play a role in one's boycotting actions, but one doesn't necessarily imply the other. Another thing worth clarifying is that boycotts are not new. They didn't emerge with social media and have not been used exclusively to knock out sexist cable TV personalities. They existed even before they gained the title boycott in the 1880s. Boycotts were used against the slave trade when those who opposed slavery boycotted sugar. That was an integral part of the triangular trade network that slavery was also a part of. There were boycotts of bus systems during the Civil Rights Movement in the US, and a boycott of British goods during the American Revolution. British goods and institutions were also boycotted during the Indian Independence Movement, which was partially led by Gandhi and which focused on liberation from the British and the catalyzation of Indian self sufficiency. European Jews boycotted Nazi goods in 1933, and the Nazis boycotted Jewish goods that same decade. The United States boycotted the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So history is filled with boycotts. And even if you girlcots, which is a made-up word that refers to a boycott that is undertaken almost exclusively by girls, the most prominent recent example of a girlcot was probably the 2005 Girlcott against the clothing company Abercrombie and Fitch. Remember them when they released a series of shirts that had racist, misogynistic phrases emblazoned across the chest, including "quote Who needs a brain when you have these?" end quote. It is also worth noting that boycotts are instigated by all kinds of people for all kinds of causes. They are not just for people and groups that could broadly be described as progressive in terms of their politics. Bill O'Reilly actually tried to convince his audience to convince brands to pull their ads from news outlets that reported on his 2004 sexual harassment settlement. His website, as of the day I'm recording this at least, still has a list of newspapers and websites he has labeled as Media Outlets That Traffic in Defamation, which includes the New Yorker magazine, Kansas City Star, and Chicago Sun-Times, among others. The man who was kicked out by a boycott has numerous times attempted to boycott other media entities that have criticized him over the years. Other recent politically conservative boycotts include one that was started by gun owners who boycotted Rosie O'Donnell's show and magazine, and one that was started by a group of Southern Baptists who boycotted Disney in 2009 For their corporate recognition of gay marriage, and expansion into what the boycotters called non-Christian themes in their movies and other properties. So boycotts are being conducted left and right, so to speak. But do they actually work? I mean, beyond the few that I've mentioned, surely there are a lot of boycotts that just never get off the ground, never gain enough traction to make any difference. I mean, Trump himself, during his presidential campaign, tried to boycott Starbucks and Apple. Supporters of Trump have tried to boycott just about any company that has ever spoken negatively about Trump or one of his policies. There's a list hosted on Reddit that hasn't been updated in a while, but among the dozens of companies listed to be boycotted by Trump supporters are PepsiCo, Amazon, Oreos, Netflix, Ben & Jerry's, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and YouTube. Now again, this list is one of the more popular and well-known on the far right when it comes to boycotts. But that doesn't make it effective. Trump's own statements about Starbucks and Apple come closer to being more official, more well-supported boycotts in the sense of having a big potential audience and a large driving force behind their success. But my feeling is that even those were kind of just casual threats and lacked much follow-through. If they had worked He would have claimed victory for them, no doubt, but I'm guessing he was just as happy not to have to deal with the upkeep on that type of movement. And part of the lack of enthusiasm there might be a result of something that I very strongly suspect about boycotts, and that is that part of the success and failure of boycotts is related to where official power rests in a particular moment. Conservative boycotts seem to have more success when a Democrat is in office. And likewise, progressives seem to be able to get more done in this regard when they are the underdogs. The impact of the perception of personal underdoggery is difficult to measure, of course, but the big success stories do seem to align with this theory. And it makes sense that groups of people would be more organizable and rallyable. When they feel like they have become the barbarians at the gate, rather than feeling that they are tasked with simply defending the gate. Hanging on to that analogy for a moment, the emergence of professional boycotts powered by social media but led by some group or influential individual is a bit like an inspiring general leading the barbarians at the gate to tactical victories. The larger strategies behind some of these conflicts are less clear at least to the people on the ground. But the effectiveness of the rallying itself and the tools that are used to keep those hordes of people organized, to keep those barbarians focused on the prize, must be pretty daunting to those who are lined up along the castle walls. I am guessing that we'll see a lot more of these fast-paced knockdowns, of the kind that we saw with O'Reilly, of popular conservative figures in the near future. At least in part, because of the current political situation, and in part because this tactic seems to be especially effective when targeting the higher echelons of media, where the stakes are highest and the money the networks and other entities behind these personalities stand to lose is monumental, hundreds of millions of dollars. Advertisers, too, have been forced to become increasingly twitchy and aware at all times of what their brand is rubbing up against, since their reputation could be tarnished or polished overnight, depending on who they associate themselves with. Some brands will decide to take an ideological stand, but most, based on how corporations work, will be quite convincible if the boycotters can make it seem as if the wave of popular public opinion, or perhaps even just the popular opinion of a particularly noisy and spendy segment of the population is on their side. Damage to a company's wallet is bad. Damage to their brand's reputation can be devastating. To their wallet for decades. Nike is still, in some ways to this day, reeling from their association with sweatshop labor back in the 1990s. The gap, too, had to climb out of the sweatshop association hole their brand was massively damaged and devalued and their entire corporate well-being was placed in a defensive apologetic posture for the better part of a decade the same things that make these corporations so strong makes them susceptible to well-aimed and sticky storylines the tools we have available today make stories easier to tell than ever before and communication between customer and corporation has increased due to a desire by these commercial entities to stay in the know and ahead of the curve. These tools, then, make these companies manipulatable, and if you can move them, you can also secondarily influence those they deal with, which, in our ad-supported media ecosystem, means just about any newspaper, TV station, or website in existence. This all assumes that a company's bottom line is affected, of course and that their bottom line takes precedent over their internally held ideology. Some industries, like the the gun industry, for instance, have a well-defined and incredibly loyal audience that is unlikely to be swayed by information provided by outsiders. As such, even a well-orchestrated boycott will be unlikely to have much real impact on their actions. But this weakness, or strength, depending on how you look at it, is found in enough corporations that there are a lot of ropes to tug on to try to make things happen available in the world today. It will be interesting to see what happens as a result of some of these movements. There will no doubt be both negative and positive results, but that there are results at all is somewhat heartening for those who are wary and even fearful of the increasing influence and power of these massive Often sociopathic by design, corporate structures. And I say both negative and positive, by the way, because every boycott will seem like a victory to some and a defeat to others. Some people will look at what's happening to Ailes and O'Reilly and possibly Hannity and consider it a massive cultural victory, while others will shake their heads at the idiocy of it all and wonder how it is that society came to a place where commentators that they trust can be levered from their jobs by no-name mobs with a chip on their collective shoulder. Which raises an interesting question. Do these people deserve to lose their shows because of the things that they have done? I personally would say yes. I think that intentionally, consistently, and gleefully destroying the reputation of the press And attempting to box in one's viewership, making them immune to information from any source but you, is incredibly bad for democracy. I also think that the allegations, for which there is a great deal of evidence, like the regular harassment of their female colleagues, is both repulsive and shameful. I believe we should stop making assholes famous, whatever their political stripes. And these guys, to me, fall squarely into that category. But I'm also aware that my values are not everyone's values. For some people, the line that that would need to be crossed before a firing should take place might be further away, or in a different place. Perhaps they need more evidence of misdeeds. Perhaps they don't see what happened as misdeeds at all. Maybe they think the trade-off is worth it, that these commentators' work is of a high enough quality that they should be allowed to be flawed humans without punishment, no matter what they do. Deservingness, then, is very subjective when it comes to this kind of thing. Thus, the fairness of the consequences of these boycotts depends on how you perceive those involved, and to a very large degree, how you perceive the larger issues for which these specific people are merely stand-ins. Progressive values versus conservative values. Corporations versus individuals. Journalism versus anti-journalism. You could frame it in a lot of different ways, but preconceived notions absolutely play a role here. Now another question, is this rebalancing of power away from corporations and toward the mob a good thing? It's important to remember that a lot of the most successful boycotts May look like organically organized movements, but in reality, they're closer to astroturfing efforts that are often conducted by politicians, meaning that they are fake grassroots movements orchestrated by powerful groups and powerful people. So, in some ways, this is merely a new weapon in the arsenal possessed by large and powerful groups. Yes, it is feasible that if Pepsi were to do something truly horrible, an organically emergent boycott could arise free of all corporate or political influence and cause some damage. But is that likely? And especially, is it likely without a group, progressive or conservative, or some other corporation backing it? Probably not. It's a hell of a lot less likely than with that higher level support, at least. And real quick, back to a question that I've already touched on just a little bit. Why is this happening more now? Why are boycotts suddenly such a big thing now? Part of the answer to that question is that we are hearing about a lot more of everything now, today, because of the rapidity of our news cycles and mediums available to deliver the news. So when a boycott occurs, especially... If it's against a well-known brand or group or person, that is news that is more likely to be broadcasted, published, and shared widely, and is therefore more likely to reach us through one of our many informational vectors. But we've also reached a point with the technologies and platforms we have in which we're no longer just figuring them out and fiddling around with them, but instead we're actually able to bring them to bear in intentional and interesting and powerful ways. I would argue that a lot of what happened in the last U.S. presidential election is the consequence of the clever usage of social media to organize but also to disseminate information, both real and fake. I would also argue that this is the case all around the world, in most elections, but also in the shaping of everyday news stories, in the management of public opinion, and so on. And so what we're seeing here is a natural progression of sorts. New tools grant new powers, but the totality of those powers are not apparent right away. We've crested a horizon in our usage of social media and related technology, and these are some of the consequences of cresting that horizon. In some cases, the utilizers of these tools will be state actors, as we've been seeing with Russia, but in other cases, it will be organizations and individuals who hope to achieve goals of their own, who make use of these tools in this way. There will be more and more of this happening, too, for better and for worse. In some cases, it truly will be the voiceless being granted a voice for the first time, and in others, it will look like that's what's happening, when in reality, it's just those in power using a new mechanism to cleverly manipulate people by using other people, as per the usual. Same game, different process, different set of technologies and tools. A good Heuristic here when it comes to boycotts, but also for many other things in life, is to imagine the kind of public teardown that is happening to Hannity and his ilk happening to someone else, someone that you think is awesome, if you do not think that Hannity is awesome. Flip it around. What if your favorite TV personality was boycotted and kicked off the air by a corporation who cannot stand to lose the ad dollars? Take a minute to really imagine that. If your beloved personality was accused of the same things, imagine how you would feel about the situation and those involved. And try to be really honest with yourself here. That intellectual honesty is important. Then step back into the situation and ask yourself if what's happening is okay, based on what you just learned about how you would feel if the situation was flipped around. Ask yourself if the forces being mustered Against this personality, our legitimate ones are legitimate forces. I think this type of perspective is important, lest we succumb to tribal thinking and lose our grasp on the bigger issues at play. What we learn by doing this type of exercise then ideally influences the actions that we take and the choices that we make. So, how do we use that information about boycotts and how they work and who is using them for what purposes? How do we actually apply that in our everyday life? One thing to keep in mind is that although these tools, these means of organization, offer us vast new powers, like a gun, they can protect you from a villain, but they can also hit the wrong target. It's possible to be duped and pulled into a frenzy, determined to pull someone down who is actually innocent. It's possible to get caught up in the crowd and enjoy participating in publicly humiliating and smearing the name of someone who doesn't deserve it. It's possible to make an honest mistake, decrying someone as a rapist or a serial harasser or some other type of criminal, only to find out later that this isn't the case. And the correction to the headline is only read by a small fraction of the people who read the original headline. The half-life of truth when it comes to this kind of thing is massive. You could be part of a mob that incorrectly labels someone and takes their life away from them. Literally or figuratively, the true facts might come out later, but never be acknowledged to the same degree by the majority as the fake facts that you helped spread. It really is useful to remember to step back and do that reversing of the situation exercise when you're trying to determine if joining such a group effort is justifiable or not. If you are liberal and a conservative speaker is being blocked from speaking at your school, being prevented by a mob or a boycott, ask yourself how you would respond if this speaker shared your political affiliation and protesters were keeping them from speaking in public. Likewise, if you're a conservative and a liberal pundit is being raked over the coals for something they said or did, ask yourself how you would respond if they were a favorite of yours and your political party of choice, and then act accordingly. This is just a heuristic, of course, it's a mental shortcut, and ideally your thought process with this would not stop there, but it is a good starting point, and it does help guide one's internal decision-making process toward more intellectual honesty, which in turn then helps us draw clear, crisp lines that, if crossed by anyone, even someone you usually agree with, warrants action. But if that line is not crossed, even if you are incensed, you're then able to avoid succumbing to a knee-jerk response and lashing out at people with whom you disagree, but who are also just as entitled to speak out as you are, or who are entitled to do their job without harassment, despite the fact that you disagree on every particular. If someone, whoever they are, does something horrible, it could very well be prudent to respond with actions that keep them from being more horrible in more places to more people. It's also worth remembering that a lot of bad things, like sexual harassment and other types of abuse, have always been going on. We only just now are becoming more aware of them publicly. And only just now have the ability to actually do something about it when powerful people are the ones committing the abuse. But if your determination of whether or not to participate in some kind of public justice-seeking is purely tribal, is based on the labels that you wear and the groups that you associate yourself with. It may be that your feelings on the matter are not as pure and objective as you've convinced yourself they are. As I mentioned in the show intro, Let's Know Things Now has a Patreon page where you can contribute monetarily to the show toward the Continuation and overtime improvement of the show. But you can also participate in discussions there, get some additional bonuses, and get an ad free version of the show. You get a separate podcast stream that has slightly adjusted episodes that just have the advertising removed. So if you're looking for a good way to contribute to this, if you're finding value in the show, that is an excellent option, as is contributing monetarily through PayPal or Venmo. You can leave a review on iTunes. You can share the show with a friend. Your efforts in this regard help me make this show possible. It allows me to take the time to produce it each week, and I appreciate that very much. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. The first sponsor today is Everlane, my favorite clothing company. They produce well-made garments that are minimal and aesthetically pleasing and structurally sound. They are the opposite of fast fashion, and in fact, the company was created in part as a response to the fast fashion trend to try to counteract it with a different set of design principles. If you go to letsnotethings.com/everlane, I will receive a commission on every purchase that you make. So if you're looking to stock up on the basics or buy like I did a cozy and well-designed parka, which is not super basic, but it might be depending on where you live, go to letsnotethings.com/everlane great way to get some new clothes that'll last you a long time and look great while also supporting this podcast. And the other sponsor today is Linda. If you go to letsknowthings.com slash Lynda, L-Y-N-D-A, you'll receive a free month trial of Linda, which gives you access to their entire video catalog of tutorials, which contains training for just a vast array of things. If you go look at the list, you'll see what I'm talking about. It started out as a company that just trained you to learn software and to learn to code. And today, it's got just so much more than that. The courses are well put together, they're very easy to understand and follow along with, and you can watch them whenever and wherever it's convenient in your own time, which is lovely. Let's note things.com/linda. The book that I'd like to recommend today is relevant to the topic that we've been discussing here. And I've actually mentioned it on a past episode, though not as an official book review. The book is entitled So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it's by one of my favorite nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, writers, John Ronson, who does investigative journalism and then writes about it in really interesting ways. And this book made me rethink my entire approach to social media. It is a call to very seriously consider your motives anytime you are tempted to pile on with shaming somebody on the internet. And it talks about some of the effects on these people and some of the bigger stories of some really well-known cases of people who seem horrible on the internet being shamed and then learning the actual story that was left out of the stories that we told each other on social media as we were attacking these people. It's all filled in in this book, and it doesn't say that you shouldn't participate in using some of these tools to tear down bad actors, but it does say and give a whole lot of support for the argument that you should very seriously consider it and figure out what your actual motives are, why you're doing it, why it feels so good, and how we should best use these tools, knowing how much power we have, how much harm we can actually cause to each other in the online world, but also in the real world, because of our actions that are taken there. So the book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's by the author John Ronson. You can pick this up at your local library, your local indie bookstore, you can get it on Amazon, your Kindle, your Kobo. Wherever you happen to pick it up, whatever's most convenient, I am guessing you will enjoy it as much as I did. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, and or would like to see a complete list of the books that I've written, which is another great way to support me, by the way, checking out some of those books, you can go to colin.io. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com. You can find me pretty much everywhere on all the social networks, and you can watch as I very carefully avoid most of the piling on that happens on the internet on these different networks. If you follow me at Colin is my name. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show at let'snotethings.com While there, you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter that goes out every Monday and contains a selection of links to interesting things that you might enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.